so it is <coughs> rather difficult uh, to be the last speaker at the conference of such a level of uh, complexity and yeah, I'll try to be short but still uh, before I go to uh, the actual case study I wanted to do I have one um, I ha I'll say uh, a couple of questions and uh, 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 deal with a couple of general questions uh, trying to explain how what I'm going to tell is connected with the general topic of the conference and of course as every other speaker here, I have to start with saying that I don't know the answer to the question, uh, to the title of the conference. I don't know whether it was, uh, there was a, such thing as Russian Enlightenment, but uh, there can be different ways in which we can deal with this question. And uh, the most obvious way is trying to figure out what Enlightenment is in general, and then to look at the Russian case and see whether it applies. And though it seems to be the most evident way to proceed, I think it's the most hopeless one. <laughs> as the one I sketched. Yes, <laughs> as uh, in this case, as Pushkin said, and uh, every Russian knows that Pushkin is always right, he said, about, <laughs> uh, he said about romanticism, but it applies to enlightenment as well. By this way, we'll never, uh, as he said, we'll get entangled from the definitions. And uh, disentangled from the definitions, yes. Uh, but there, there are other ways, and in uh, speaking about them, I also will try to make a bridge uh, to the further discussion and to Simon Dixon's article, which was offered for the discussion. It's studying the language. How people talk about enlightenment, how they discuss it. And uh, here, as, uh, uh, for example, uh, Simon very convincingly has shown the uh, Enlightenment in the French uh, sense, Le, Le Lumière, uh, coincides in Prasvishenia with the old Russian religious tradition, speaking about Prasvishenia, which somehow helps us to understand something and so in many ways blurs something. And there were a rather interesting discussion of this combination of two senses of the word enlightenment in the recent book by Marcus Levit on the visual dominant in the 18th century. Um, and so uh, and it, it's this, I would say, Kozelekian Begriff's Geschichte way of looking at the meaning of the word uh, through the uh, long period, or there is another more, I would say, Skinnerian way of looking at it, which was demonstrated today by Kelsey in her brilliant talk Speak, uh, dealing not with the language, not with the word, but with the utterances and the contextualization of different utterances, uh, especially interesting answering the question about Russian Enlightenment as all of them were written in French, actually, and said in French. Uh, and uh, this, I think, is much more productive way to dealing with the question, but it also limits us uh, to the people who own the discourse. And I think the question goes deeper than the language, and we can ask the question of enlightenment, or whatever it is, as a lived experience. I'm always having a problem with English here, because unlike German, I don't know the word for or for erlebnis. I don't think English has it, 
Yeah, but how people live it through, how they live through the Enlightenment. And in the talks today, there were some, I think, very interesting views on it through the theater audience, through the landscape gardening, and other ways to see it. And so uh, my case is sort of about it. It's sort of about it. Uh, but, mm, of course, uh, the whole notion <coughs> is questionable. Uh, and I'll... Uh, what uh, I will, I provisionally would describe as enlightenment in Russian context is the perception of Paris as a cultural capital. In a way, enlightenment is seeing Russian as a cultural, Russia as the whole Europe, as a cultural province of France. Of course, yeah, and living in the idea of this, being a pupil. In this way, Russian enlightenment, of course, may said to be preceding the French one. Yeah, but because this feeling comes earlier, that we have to emulate the French. Of course, uh, the feeling of being at the periphery implies the rebellion against the metropolis, and, we, and which goes like every rebellion in two stages. First, you want the autonomy, and so you decry the Galamans. You say that you should learn from the French, but in the decent, intelligent way, not to be stupid. And you have <coughs> your share. You have to be in a Russian way to do it. Yeah, just we are happy to be within this French-dominated empire, the Parisian-dominated empire, but we have our way of doing things. And then you come with the demand for complete independence, the Zonderweg and whatever, which comes from the, with the Romanticism. Uh, and uh, the case um, I'm going to discuss, yes, and uh, Simon uh, has started his uh, very interesting article on with the quotation from Batyushkov, and Batyushkov is a very apt writer to discuss it, and once he was saying, quoting, of course, La Nouvelle Eloise, uh, he was explaining why he is not interested in the old history of Russia. He was actually attacking Karamzin, who at that time was writing the history of Russian state, and he said why he is interested in all this dusty old ages. Roman history is interesting, yeah, uh, Greek history is interesting, Russian is not. And then, of course, he was a Russian officer who was wounded during the Napoleonic Wars, nearly mortally wounded, saved with the huge risks, and he said, yes, you have to love your motherland. The one who doesn't love his own motherland is an outcast. Uh, but uh, it's the quotation, I think, from 1807. But can you love ignorance? Can you love ignorance? Can you be interested in the uh, time which is separated from us by centuries and what's for more by the century of enlightenment? So that's, I think, the rather clear definition in this way of shaping yourself in the French model. On the French way, uh, the, the story starts from Peter's reform and of looking like the, like the Europeans, dressing, shaving, and whatever. And then, finally, it all starts and goes from outward inside, and then becoming the Europeans, as was said in the poem by an anonymous Russian poet of the 18th century. The poem has been many times wrongly attributed to Sumarokov. Uh, Peter gave us existence and Catherine Saul. Yeah, so first you exist, being existing and having a soul means being European. 
Yeah, so first you, you look like European, you physically exist, and then you start to feel and experience life in a European manner and a European style. Uh, so now I come to my case, and um, it is a very minor case, though it did uh, some sort of a small, it was a small city sensation in Moscow of 1800. It's past the age of Catherine the Great. It's the last year of the reign of Emperor Paul. Uh, and so I'll first start to tell what happened, actually. Then how do we know about what happened, what are the sources and how we judge. There are a couple of interesting and tricky details in it. Then what were the reaction to the reactions to the events, and then very shortly I'll summarize the conclusions. So uh, in August 1800, uh, a girl, uh, Varvara uh, she was uh, from a highly noble family. It, uh, as it's all the story has to do with uh, religion and with uh, taking the monastic oaths and whatever, uh, it's worth noting that she belonged to the Sakovnin family, which gave to Russia uh, the famous Bayarini Morozova, who was her grand-grand-aunt, one of the leader of the old leaders of the old belief, most allowed by the famous painting by Surikov. And uh, in the 17th century, of course. Yeah, and so uh, Sakovnina was her main name. Uh, and so Varvara Sakovnina, in August 1800, left her house during the night. Uh, uh, at that time, she was about 20 years of age, went on, f on, uh, on feet to the nearby village in the suburbs of Moscow, to the peasant, to the house of the peasant, uh, whom she knew because uh, he sold mushrooms in their house. And uh, she, she's never been there. So she had to ask for directions. She went into enormous amount of troubles on her way. She was physically exhausting. Of course, she was taken for a criminal on the way, yeah, because it was uh, young noble girls were not supposed to walk by their own late in the night or early in the morning, or so on and so forth. So finally, she arrived there with the final goal uh, to end in the monastery of Sevsk, in the provincial monastery, she already has chosen this monastery, I'll tell you later how. Uh, but her idea, her vision, was to, before she, uh, she will uh, take the oaths, to dwell a little bit in a village, in a peasant uh, family, to acquire some skills of providing for herself because she believed that otherwise she would be no good in the monastery where people had to provide for themselves. She, she decided to learn the skills from the peasants and uh, then uh, to, be, uh, to be transferred to the monastery. Uh, so it was a huge and major event. Contrary to the received opinion uh, which I shared for a while, but which seems to be wrong. It was not so atypical for a noble girl to take monastic oaths. They did it from, on a rather regular level. But to do it in such a way was absolutely uh, incredible and impossible. 
So her uh, family was absolutely shattered. The reason which was sent to do this because she could not overcome the grief for her father, who died six years before in 1794, and she was desperate that her family members, her elder brothers and her mother, were sort of oblivious to the memory of his father with whom she's been happy. And so she couldn't uh, survive it. I'll speak about her motives in detail a little bit later. So she, uh, she decided to leave. Then her brothers arrived. Yeah, after she sent a letter back home, took her uh, to the family estate and tried to convince her not to go to the monastery. She spent half a year in the estate and then finally insisted on uh, taking the oath, went to Sesk. Uh, there were the regulations at the time, the state regulations since the time of Peter the Great, that there were two of them. That first, when you start in an unraised novice, you can't be taken out before three years. That was one regulation. And the other one, that no one could do it, the females could not do it before 40. They could live at the monastery, but not take oaths. But uh, the monastery was extremely eager to take a person of that social statute. So her papers were forged. It was written that she has been there for three years. Her age was changed from 20 to 40 <laughs> in the papers. So, well, uh, nobody ever, nobody ever believed there was something wrong with it. Yeah, it's all about the oath to the Lord. Yeah, but nobody believed, yeah, nothing considered. Cheating the state is perfectly fine, however strongly religious and solemn you are. Um, anyway, uh, so she took the oaths, uh, and very, uh, very soon, several years after, she was significantly disappointed, unsurprisingly, about what she saw in the monastery. Uh, she took what is called in Russia, in Russian, Velikoyshima. I wonder what is it uh, in English. The, yes, the Great Ascetic Oath. Uh, it is, you know, she went to the completely dark room where she stayed with her sen uh, senior for nearly 20 years without ever leaving the room which was completely dark, nearly not taking any food. Yes, the level of asceticism was absolutely incredible. Then after living 20 years like this, uh, she was summoned by the Archbishop of Arel to become an abbotess in Vigensky Monastery. She was moved from one monastery to another. And she became an abbotess there, so she had to renounce this great scheme because of the order from her superior in the hierarchy. And uh, in this position, she uh, showed incredible administrative and managerial skills. She brought the monastery to the high degree of prosperity, both economical, rebuilt buildings, rebuilt churches. Yes, she was incredibly successful as an abbotess. And so uh, the Empress Alexandra Fedorovna, the wife of Nicholas I, came to visit her to Ariel. Yes, she became famous. There are rumors which is absolutely impossible to either, either refute or uh, to prove that she was the prototype of Lisa Kalitina in Varianskoye Gnezdo by Turgenev, which 
Well, there is a lot of story. Maybe. Turgenev was, of course, the residence of Ariel, so it's not impossible. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, that's the story. <coughs> then the sources. Uh, <coughs> as she became so prominent in the church, there are two biographies. Uh, after she died, written both after she died in, in 1844. Uh, one was anonymous. It looks by one published copy, I will give uh, the explanation, that it was, <coughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, not to spend too much time on it, that it was written by Count Dmitry Rusev, a person who never met her personally, as he confessed, but visited her grave, it was published in 1861, and tells her the story, and Urusov gives all the facts he knows about her, only on, based on one source, on her unpublished autobiography. She says, I have read her autobiography, and he also spoke in Ariel with some other people. Maybe it was not Urusov, but like that it was. Then, there was a much bigger academic biography of her by uh, the uh, scholar, uh, uh, the religious uh, scholar for Mario, uh, Gavriil Pisetsky, who was the teacher of the Mariel Religious Seminary. And he did a, a, a work in archival sources, recreating the whole economic story of her governing of the monastery, the career. He spoke to the heroes in the 1880s. He spoke to the old nuns who mm, uh, still remembered her, but his main source still remained her autobiography, which was, yes, he said. And then he mentioned that her fans are actually planning to publish it. Uh, it was published, but remained uh, and remains unknown until present day because it was lost on the pages of the provincial newspaper Orlovsky Yeprochiani Vidmosti, published by the same Pisetsky, not by the some fans of Vumilge uh, Serafima, as Varvara Sikovina happened to be called in the church. Uh, and the, so, mm, what is important to that? When you start reading, uh, the autobiography, when you read it, it becomes extremely strange that such a text was written by someone who spent like 20 years under this greatest ascetic roof, mm -hmm. living in a complete darkness. Uh, the language is completely secular. Most of the story, most of the story, like 70% of the story, actually tells. <coughs> of the autobiography tells the story how she left the house. Uh, that's the basic essence. Uh, the, all her life after this covers like 30% of the text. There are some details and some other things, but not much, really not much. Uh, and <coughs> thus, mm, you become rather dubious on the question who was actually the author of this strange autobiography. It doesn't look like being authentic. Uh, there are some also small details which make you doubt it. 
but uh, we will not discuss now. Uh, and actually, Pisevsky, who published it in the autobiography, seemed <coughs> to have some doubts himself because he had. I had to clean the text <laughs> from some expressions that are absolutely uncharacteristic of the person. <laughs> yeah. Somehow, how this, uh, 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 these details got in the text and whatever, he didn't do. So he still believed that it, is the, it was the authentic text, but he was not sure. So he... Uh, he published it here, and I think mm, the text is enormously interesting, and it is a wonderful literary text, uh, mostly because I think we can uh, make some suggestions and speculations about the possible author, because Varvara uh, Mikhailovna Sukhnina had a younger sister, Anna Mikhailovna Sukhnina, uh, Pavlova, uh, in her marriage, Anna Pavlova, and she was uh, actually a literateur, not a writer actually, but she, she wrote non-stop. She was very important here till the age of 90. She died at the age of 90, until the age of 90 she was continued writing. Some proposthumous publication appeared uh, uh, together with her obituary. She was writing poems, there are memoirs, not very important, she didn't publish. Uh, more or less anything in her lifetime, but she was doing all this writing. In her youth, she was a sort of love uh, from Zhukovsky, Alexander Turgenev, and she was deeply in this literary, early romantic milieu of Russian writers. Uh, and so my guess would be that Anna Mikhailovna actually if have not written this autobiography, but has strongly uh, contributed to it. However, it is completely clear that given the whole status of the elder brother of the family, she would never dare to invent anything. Everything she wrote and was, uh, I think, uh, completely based on what she saw as based on the stories she, she heard from her sister. And they met. There, are, there is evidence that they met after the monastic columns, and the letters from her, and whatever. So this autobiography is, in a way, interestingly, brings together both the self-perception of the noble girl, which uh, has taken the monastic oaths, and the perceptions of her family. You can see it just merging in one text. There are a couple of other evidence which also uh, uh, can be discussed. So, uh, um, I'll not discuss all the details of this incredibly interesting text. I'll hope to, to be able to write about it at length. It's uh, work in, very much a work in progress. Uh, but mm, I'll deal only with one question, which this autobiography deals the decision to go to the monastery. How only how and why it was taken by this uh, very young girl. Shockingly overburdened by incredible family responsibilities, 
by the difficult relations in the family, by the necessity to take care of younger sisters of, uh, and younger brothers who were completely neglected by her mother, as she writes, the, her yes, economic and managerial <coughs> skills probably developed in that period, which were realized much later. Uh, and being suddenly belonging to a rich and prosperous and happy family, suddenly becoming abs feeling absolutely lonely and alienated. And uh, so it starts with this immediate juxtaposition of the house of pleasures where she lived in her youth and the house of sorrow which it became after her father's death, immediately mm, uh, resembling and uh, showing the reminiscences from the famous Dzerzhevitz poem Nesmertnyati Mishirskova, the Stobulyevstv, the Grob Staitia, where you had a table of wonderful food, you have a coffin, and you have this horrible contrast of her early earthly happiness and terrible misery after the death of her father, and then she becomes lonely and she says, I've continued reading Jung's thoughts, Jung's Nights, uh, Nights Thoughts of Love, Death and Immortality by Edward Jung, where he was weeping over the body of her, of his only daughter, and his thoughts on death were giving relief uh, to my poor soul. Every, uh, all the time I was shedding tears over the books and thought with Jung. Боже мой, когда умру я, когда узрю жизнь вечную. My God, when will I die and when will I see the eternal life? It is interesting that both biographers of Igumini Serafima quote this line, quote that she was thinking of death and saying, giving quotations, but neither of them mentions Jung. Uh, they attribute it to herself because involving in the second half, writing in the second half of the 19th century, after the important role of religion in the, under the reign of Nicholas I, which when it became the essence of Russian identity, <coughs> bringing the foreign author in, on the stage that didn't seem convincing. So they drop, can, uh, uh, drop Jung and but just uh, leave the quote. Then she once again describes the horrible uh, stories uh, in the family, quarrels between her brothers, impossibility <coughs> of being there, and says, in this absolutely unbearable condition, one clever and educated and learned person uh, offered me to start to read Fenelon. Fenelon was, of course, a must-reading for all educated writers <coughs> of the period. So she read his sermon, where she saw one of her sermons where he spoke about the joys of leaving the world and going to the monastery. And he said that every hour I was ready to go to, according to Fenelon's teaching, into solitude and to the, into the deepest desert. But the problem was that she could never see or imagine the monastery like one described by Fenelon. It was the paradisical, <coughs> ideal monastery, and she was visiting monasteries around Moscow that didn't please her. And suddenly, a solution comes in the image of Nigina Kosotkina, 
one or more seals of the one of the most aristocratic Russian families, who says she's, she's <coughs> been in the nunnery of Setsk, and there is the the paradise which is inhabited by the peaceful souls and governed by the angels who by their uh, uh, look like the image of Holy Trinity. So the decision is made. She heard about this Abisetsk monastery and makes a decision. <coughs> and finally, but she doesn't know how to do it. And finally, she reads the third text, which is mentioned in the autobiography, this time the Russian one. She reads Karamzin. She reads Karamzin and she said, she reads especially the article where he describes all the pleasures of peaceful solitude. Uh, and she said, I read the works of Karamzin. Uh, by the time, by 1800, uh, uh, 1800, yeah, there is just one edition of works of Karamzin, which is maybe still. That's the only possibility, none, uh, none other exists. And there is there there is only one work which is clearly describes the pleasures of peaceful solitude, which is Derevnya, which has a lot to do with the village economy described by Andreas in the previous talk. Mm -hmm. Mostly what he describes are the pleasures of this economic life. He says, I don't need a luxurious house in the village, I need a low one. Yet here I go and eat my milk with cream and enjoy it, and here the bread sounds fine, and here the peasants are, and all, you know, all the collection of, I would say, clichés, but mostly they became clichés after Karamzin, mm -hmm. the greatest cliché-producing author in the Russian history. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, so after him they all became clichés. Uh, but mm, Karamzin's job was, in a way, of bringing all clichés of European literature into Russia, bringing them, uniting them, combining them together, and selling them, in a way, to Russian audience. So this type of peaceful solitude in the Rousseauian, Horatian manner yeah, comes and finally cements and seals her decision actually to go to the monastery. She says she's weeping. For se after she read this, she wept for several hours without stop. And then a miracle happens. A peasant comes to the... She sees an old peasant selling mushrooms. So she brings him in, uh, 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 sells, uh, buys his mushrooms, asks him where he lives. He gives him, uh, her the basic indications, and she decides to part and to join him in his house to learn the peasant skills. And as she said, uh, here it is, I told to myself. These are the sort of village dwellers, from where we, can, we have to learn to work, to work by your own hands. And after the uh, sort of a spoiled life we have, understand finally what is the real need for a human being. Uh, Varvara's disappearance was a major shock in the nearby circles. Her family was connected to the 
Moscow University to the Nobel Pension Blagorodny uh, Pension at Moscow University. So the circles around were very much stirred. We have a couple of evidence, mostly belonging to Andrei Turgenev, his younger brother Alexander Turgenev, former uh, good friend of Pushkin, future good friend of Pushkin, was secretly engaged with one of the Soviet <coughs> sisters, Anna Pavlova, as I suppose the would-be writer and the author of the autobiography of her sister at that time. Uh, so he's deeply impressed, mostly by the power of feeling of this little girl, young girl. He all the time scolds himself for not being having uh, a real power of feeling, and so he sees in this girl an incredible example for himself. And he does know bits and pieces of the story just happened. He writes a letter <coughs> to Zankowski about this, he writes in his diary about this, and he tries to figure it out, and he doesn't have any idea that he really wants to go to the monster. It's simultaneous, you see it here in the next day. So her major plans are absolutely unknown to him. So what he writes to Zankowski is that she decided to live like a simple peasant which would be, of course, even more unheard of than uh, going to the monastery. Yeah, she, uh, she is deeply impressed. He says he decided to live on a simple parents, uh, peasant, and he also adds an interesting detail. In her escape, she didn't take anything with her except Bible and Rousseau. Yeah, God knows how he found it. There is absolutely nothing in the evidence I know, but, well, the absolutely uh, excited uh, tone doesn't seem, once again, doesn't uh, suggest he invented something. Probably there was some sort of discussion about this, and evidently, from the autobiography, we know that there were no Rousseau in her bag. Probably there was Bible, uh, very unlikely, but definitely there was uh, the holy icon she kept at home. Yeah, this is written. She tells what she put in the bag. Yeah, the Bible is not mentioned, but the holy icon is. Played some role in her future career. And uh, thus, uh, and also out of his incredible admiration for this tenderness and power of feeling which this girl has, he makes a decision to translate Werther and to dedicate her, her to her first translation of Werther. That's his interpretation of what she had done. And so, as I've uh, said, there is no indication that she really has taken Rousseau with him. Definitely not with her. But it doesn't look like he was mistaken so much. It's all this religious act this act of religious conversion, of huge belief, of dedicating your life to God and finally ending into this incredible ascetic life, is based on Rousseauian, Jungian, 18th century early Western sentimental perception of uh, literature, of life, of human experience, and so on and so forth. And I would end here, I promised the conclusion, but I would say that if there was a Russian Enlightenment, that is it.
<laughs> okay. I think, um,